for the curious, that's a humpback whale. And I'm not just playing it because it's relaxing. This is a podcast about why our planet needs whales. They're not just good singers. Whales are incredibly important species in the ocean. We consider them what's called ecosystem engineers, which means that they engineer their own habitats and they modify their environments. Most of us love whales, but it turns out the ocean really needs them too. And here's the downer. We keep running them over with ships. This has got to stop. So this week we did a deep dive, sorry, on this question. How can we stop whale roadkill? Yes, in this episode, you're going to learn a lot more about how whale song can be used to keep whales safe. You'll hear about something called the whale pump. You'll meet oceanographers, bioacousticians, shipping folks, and for some bonus trivia, you'll even learn why Moby Dick could never have been a blue whale. I'm Kiara Kelly. And I'm James Bray. Welcome to House on Fire. Our house is still on fire. This is Thermopylae. This is Achincourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. We have to rise to this occasion. The transition isn't going to be easy. So, down to the sea. Beautiful, nurturing. And also getting a bit crowded, apparently. That might sound ridiculous. I mean, the ocean covers most of the planet and it is miles deep. I mean, how crowded can it be, right? And yet, the fact is that out on the high seas, things are changing fast. In simple terms, they aren't the last frontier they once were. Now, I don't get to say this very often, so indulge me for a second here. Consider Moby Dick. So now we're talking about the mid-1800s. You've got Ishmael, right, the narrator, who's just getting fed up with how busy life is on land. He sort of like feels that he can't walk around town without having somebody knock his hat off or, you know, uh, um, bump him around in the streets, right? And so then he um, jumps on this ship and he sails into this, you know, vast open space where finally has a place to, you know, have the space he needs to be human and breathe easy, right? Um, and I sort of contrast that experience to, uh, you know, going to sea right now. You're not going out into a place where you can escape for years at a time. You're not going out to a place where you were the only show in town for a hundred or a thousand miles around you. You're going to an increasingly congested space. Um, and so um, it's interesting to see it sort of poetically described. Um, the one quiet place left on the planet was the oceans at the time that um, Moby Dick was written. And uh, that's... Uh, that's not the case anymore. That's Doug McCauley, an ocean scientist who runs something called the Benioff Ocean Initiative. We'll come back to that. But basically, he knows a lot more than I do about the crowded seas. Uh, you see an increasingly large footprint for shipping as global commerce has increased. We have more uh, ocean highways that are popping up and becoming more used. We have uh, aquaculture farming that's beginning big time in the oceans. We're starting to build energy power plants for wave energy and uh, um, uh, ocean thermal energy. We're um, beginning to change the chemistry of the oceans through climate change and pollution. We're considering mining in the oceans. We have a real obligation to figure out how to um, see commerce and human activity spin up in the oceans in a way that doesn't uh, step on all the wildness. This is the new challenge for ocean science is trying to figure out how to negotiate an increasingly busy ocean. 
And this is a big challenge. As we take more and more harmful activities into the ocean, more and more solutions are needed to take the pressure off of it and preserve its ecosystems. There's no silver bullet here. Keeping the ocean healthy is going to need the combined effect of thousands of solutions all over the world. But for the sake of this podcast, we picked one. So have a listen to this. That is the sound of a blue whale. Speed it up a little bit to help human ears hear it better. So the blue whale is literally the biggest thing ever to have lived on Earth. Ever. And yet, as you said, they are literally being run over by boats, just like rabbits on a busy road. Obviously, we're talking about very big boats here, especially container ships, the kinds of ships that carry goods between continents. These things are huge. Their engine alone is the size of a house, Whales may be big, but hitting a blue whale in one of these is like hitting a hedgehog with a lorry. And sadly, it's not rare. Whale strikes are happening all over the world, from Sri Lanka to Mexico. So if you're like me, you might be wondering, how come the whales don't just get out of the way? I mean, boats only go on the surface, so why wouldn't a whale just dive? Here's Anna Sirovich, who is an oceanographer and bioacoustician. That's someone who specialises in sounds produced by living organisms, especially whales in her case. You're assuming that they know that the ship is there. Ships, when they're emitting sound, the sound is not travelling uniformly in all directions. So it's easier to hear it behind because the sound mostly is is, uh, produced in the back with the propellers and and all of that. And so um, they're shadowing in front of the ship where it makes it difficult to hear it. If you're relying on vision, then that's pretty tricky underwater because light doesn't travel as far. So it's it can be quite challenging. And then if the ship is moving really fast, the your time to respond from when you could possibly be actually perceiving that there is a ship until the ship is there could be too short. We wanted to know how many whales we're really talking about and how big this problem is, but it turns out to be not so easy to answer. Back to Anna. So that is a tricky thing because blue whales and fin whales and humpbacks, basically all of these, this group of whales called balanopterid whales, when they get killed and die, they sink. They don't float. So here's where we get to that trivia I promised. Why Moby Dick couldn't have been a blue whale? It was actually also a reason why they weren't whaled for a very long time, because there had to have been all kinds of technological advances that once they were killed, they could be made sure they stay on the surface, it could be basically pumped with air so they float and could then be exploited rather than just having them sink. So, now you know, Ahab wouldn't have bothered to hunt Moby Dick if he had been a blue whale, because if he had ever managed to kill him, the whale would have sunk before anyone had a chance to do anything with it. With sperm whales, sadly for them, it's a different story. I mean, we really know about these instances from specific situations where maybe the whale gets caught on the bow of the ship and the ship comes in with the whale, you know, on it. Or um, in in situations where there is interactions with land and, and other features that allow that carcass to come ashore before it sinks. This, this is part of the reason why there is a concern because we know that the percentage of whales that we see that have died from ship strike is severely underrepresenting the, the true number. Bottom line, The ship strike death numbers are sketchy, but if you tally up the ones we know about every year, it's quite a lot. So how big is the problem? 
One study in 2017 estimated over 80 whales killed each year in California alone. So the global figure seems likely to be in the thousands. Proportionally, that's a lot. We're not talking about sardines here. There aren't hundreds of millions of whales out there. The good news is there are solutions on the table. Indeed. So in California, and where else, there's a really cool project on this, with a whole lot of scientists, activists, sailors, business and government folks coming together to try and sort the issue out once and for all. Let me introduce Sean Hastings, who has a great job. He works for something called the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the United States government, protecting the Channel Islands Marine Sanctuary, a beautiful marine sanctuary off the coast of Southern California. Sadly, it's not always as pleasant as it sounds. The fall of 2007 is when we had five blue whales wash up in our region that were later determined to have been struck by ship after our agency performed what is called a necropsy. These animals come to this region in the summer months to feed. When they're here for four to six months, they are head down diving all day long feeding on krill. Unfortunately, where they feed happens to be along the busy international shipping lanes that draw in thousands of container ships and car carriers and bulk carriers from around the world annually. So we have this unfortunate conflict between busy shipping lanes and feeding whales. Naturally, Sean wanted to do something about this. So he started looking into the problem and how other places around the world deal with whale strikes. There are really two simple management approaches to reducing the risk of ship strike on whales. One is to separate ships and whales in time and in space. And the other is to slow ships down because a slower ship is a safer ship for whales and reduces the potential fatal strike if those animals are in the same place as where that ship is transiting. So Sean's agency started working on these solutions, in particular trying to get ships to slow down. They put together a voluntary speed reduction program called Protecting Blue Whales in Blue Skies. The idea being to give cash incentives, plus obviously good publicity, to shipping companies that voluntarily reduce vessel speed to 10 knots in these whale-rich areas, which scientists say gives the whales a much improved chance of not getting run over. And it worked, up to a point. So they definitely have got ships slowing down, and Sean was at pains to point out that a lot of companies have really made an effort, but at the same time, they're still a long way from full participation. In short, he'd like to see more progress. So what stops shipping companies cooperating fully? Why doesn't everyone just slow down? I mean, it's not like shipping companies want to hit whales. But guess what? It's complicated. Well, I think there's a lot of market-driven decisions that carriers are forced to make. Some make good decisions, some make decisions solely based on their bottom line. Costco recognizes that they have a direct social responsibility to protect our environment in whatever ways and means that they can contribute to that. Carrie Asuncion is General Manager of Terminal and Operations at Costco Shipping, one of the top performing shipping companies in the speed reduction program. She's been in the industry for over 30 years. To slow a ship down changes your transit speed, which is a, a very high commercial consideration when people are when companies are choosing what carrier to move their goods globally. You know, the faster, the more you know, less cost, and all that kind of things. But 
to slow a vessel down, you change your approach to terminals or to the ports, and some ports work on a first-come, first-served basis on berth availability. So this is a big deal. If you miss a berth, your ship then has to sit around and wait for some other ship to unload, and that can take days, which is a major issue in today's marketplace. The, the days a big warehouse is storing cargo for months ahead of a season or anything like that, those are gone. Those are additional costs that nobody wants to bear. So when you're off by two or three days, that's a big consideration for some of your, your high-profile accounts. That's important to them, that you get that cargo there and it's available to them within a certain time period. And that's all plotted from the very beginning. So, how to help shippers slow down more often? Here's where we inject some problem solving. We need to go back to Doug McCauley. A few years ago, in Doug's life, this happens. Uh, minding my own business, I'm a marine biologist, and um, uh, it was published, had published a paper about this increasing footprint of human activity in the oceans and what this might mean for um, the future of this wild space, future of species extinction in this space, um, and really the a great urgency to get ahead of this accelerating industrial activity in the oceans so that we you know get what we want for humans and for wildlife and uh, that research ended up in the New York Times um, Mark Benioff saw that sent me a note said let's have lunch that would be Mark Benioff founder of Salesforce to be totally honest I know a lot about um, different marine mammal species but not so much about uh, the species that uh, our leaders in the tech industry. So Mark sent me this email and I had to Google search Mark um, and then uh, realized that um, there was an email I probably should respond to. We sat down and started talking and, um, you know, one of the things that emerged was that ocean scientists were studying these issues to such high resolution that we had a very clear view of what the problems were, you know, down to the uh, millionth decimal point exactly what the problem was and how much ocean acidification was increasing or how exactly with great precision where and when and how many whales were being killed but we weren't actually owning as part of our job description problem solving these problems that we had come to know so well so in other words uh, ocean scientists from his vantage point were writing an increasingly high resolution obituary for the oceans but weren't actually getting involved and in trying to do something about helping out so Mr. Benioff founds and funds an ocean initiative with Doug at the helm. The idea being to basically crowdsource ideas for the oceans and bring scientists and ocean experts together to work on the best ones. So the message goes out to the world, and guess what? They had a load of submissions from people who were concerned about, you guessed it, whale strikes. This is where Anna comes back into the picture. When the Benioff group first put out call for proposals, it seemed to me that acoustics would be a good way to try to tackle this because there is the question of how do you know that the animals are there? And sound is one way that we can do that. My work has been in, co in collaboration with Mark Baumgartner at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He has been deploying a uh, buoys, acoustic buoys that record and, and detect sounds by from different species of whales. And in my group, we have been then reviewing those recordings to verify a presence of different species of, of baleen whales. And so the buoy sends a signal of all of the possible extracted calls every two hours. And uh, we can then go through and 
based on the characteristics of those features, decide if those extract, extracted signals, if they correspond to blue whale calls, fin whale calls, or humpback calls, which are all species that are common in the area of the Santa Barbara Channel. Once we have reviewed this tracks and this, these recordings, we then mark it and basically decide whether there is a, a definitely detected or probably detected or not detected whale of each of those three species in the recordings. And that gets um, displayed on a, on a website and also a message gets sent out when there are animals in the in the channel. So in essence, Mark and Anna are building a system for listening out for whale song in the channel. Acoustic boys use underwater microphones to listen out, and the detected sounds are then relayed to scientists via satellite who can identify the species of whales in near real time, which is helpful information for shipping companies that might be operating in the same area. Now you're not going blind, you have an idea that there possibly could be whales there, so you're more alert, I would think, to really watching and your speed, speed reduction, if you have to slow a little bit more, you know, and you're more alert watching physically, visibly for any signs. Because the visibility is so poor, and that's really what you have to work with when you're transiting, is the visibility. You know, you, you can't turn one of those ships on a dime. You know, so what, chi what Costco does, they post a, a seaman on the ship, and he's watching, physically watching, and reporting if he sees any whales. And then that gives them the most advanced opportunity to adjust if they need to. But these ships are planning their journeys a long way in advance. It's not always going to be actionable information for them, although Carrie assured me that the more notice they have, the better. Still, in a perfect world, what would be even better than knowing when whales are around is knowing when they're going to be around. Step forward another proposal to the Benioff Initiative. Meet Brianna Abrams, wildlife ecologist, who's developing something I thought was pretty cool. One of the skill sets that my office um, is specifically strong in is the is using models to predict where species are in the ocean. And so we have a team of physical oceanographers that have really wonderful expertise in modeling how the ocean works on a physical level. And then we have ecologists that study the biological aspects of what's going on in the ocean. And so when you bring those two things together, the physics and the biology, then you can get make really powerful models of how changes in ocean physics might create changes in, in species or the species biology. One of the skill sets that I have is using that information to predict into the future where we think species are going to be. And that's a that's a um, technique that many ecologists use, which is called species distribution modeling. And so the idea with Benioff was that we could use species distribution modeling to predict where whales would be on any given day based on the ocean conditions. Effectively, and at the risk of oversimplifying, this is a kind of high-tech crystal ball for whale movement. So the basic approach is to use information on when, where we know animals have been in the past and what kind of habitats they've used, and then to use that information to predict into the future. So we had an incredibly 
large data set on blue whale movements on the west coast where we knew exactly where they went on every single day for a period of almost 10 years. And that could help us tease apart using statistical models what types of ocean conditions they prefer and which types of ocean conditions they don't prefer. And then now, if we look at the ocean on any given day, we can say, well, here's an area that we know has the habitat qualities that whales prefer, and here's an area that we know that they has the qualities that they wouldn't prefer. And so we can make estimates and predictions of where they're likely to be based on those ocean conditions. So when you put all these approaches together, you do end up with a pretty powerful tool to be able to tell vessel operators, okay, there are very likely whales in this area at this time, so please be vigilant, slow down. That tool is called Whale Safe, and it went live this year in the Santa Barbara Channel. Carrie told me that this kind of solution should definitely help operators like Costco who want to try and reduce whale strikes. And Doug is pretty optimistic that they're at least getting closer to a solution in California. Of course, there are a lot of other places around the world where this is relevant too. There's maybe a, you know, a real opportunity for us to do something about an issue that's in fact pretty ludicrous. How can we not have uh, the biggest animal on in the oceans? How can we how are we ending up with so much of of of, of these of these massive animals turning up as roadkill, right? That's a solvable issue. Most of us love whales, of course, and we want to see them protected from ship strikes for no other reason than that. But the issue runs deeper than that. Whales aren't really just an animal, they're an actor in the ecosystem. Of course, so are all species, but some are bigger than others. Whales are incredibly important species in the ocean. We consider them what's called ecosystem engineers, which means that they engineer their own habitats and they modify their environments. They bring nutrients from the bottom of the ocean up to the top of the, the ocean surface where they can enhance primary productivity so they can help make more productive food webs and help um, create more sustainable ocean ecosystems. That's known as the whale pump, by the way. And this isn't just whale PR. Actually, the International Monetary Fund has recently quantified the value of a whale. They say a single great whale is worth $2 million, which comes to more than $1 trillion for the current stock of great whales. The IMF based its figures on each whale's contribution to the whale watching sector, which is worth over $2 billion, the fishing industry, and to carbon capture. Each whale actually sequesters around 30 tons of carbon in its lifetime, which it sends to the bottom of the ocean when it dies. So really, they're like natural carbon sequestration, like trees, except 30 tons is about what a tree would sequester in over a thousand years. But maybe this is all a bit unromantic. We know they're, you know, really important in, in ocean food webs. Um, but, you know, to be totally honest, the things that I most value about whales when I sort of shed all of that, that uh, the values and their importance that I can pick up reading peer-reviewed scientific literature and just go out and just take a moment to watch a whale, you know, there with my kids listening to an animal breathe next to you that, uh, um, uh, you know, has a lung that's as large as your boat. Why are so many people jumping on boats to see whales? You jump on a boat because you want to see the biggest animal, a blue whale that's ever lived on a planet. It's bigger than a dinosaur that uh, breath and size and beauty and power are like nothing else 
um, that's ever lived on a planet. If the chance to feel small by a whale at sea was lost, that would, um, that would be something special on our planet that we would have no more and that we don't want to lose. And that's pretty much our out point this week. But here's a closing thought. A bowhead whale that is born this year can reasonably expect to live into the 23rd century. Whether it actually gets to live that long and what sort of ocean it gets to inhabit by then, these are very largely in our hands and will be determined by how successfully we can come up with ideas like this all over the world. So next week, we're sticking with the ocean theme and looking at the emergent area of blue finance for ocean solutions. Can you get rich by saving the ocean? Please join us. And until then, farewell. Farewell.